Amen. <clears throat> well, if you have a copy of God's Word and would like to open to the book of Mark, uh, that'll be a good place for us to be. Normally, um, when we, you know, each week we look at one particular chapter, and as you can tell by the different passages that we've already read, we're going to do something a bit differently. And part of the reason we do that is because I like stories. I like those stories that are complex and intricate. I like those stories that you can dive down in and read about the nuanced um, character flaws in various people, how you can see how people grow and change in, in various circumstances. And then I also love those stories that you can zoom out. You can kind of see the big picture, the grand scheme of things. And so... And I think this is one of the things I love about the Bible. I love about the way that we can look at a single verse. And I've talked about this before. Spurgeon used to take one verse and he would preach for an hour on, on two lines of a verse. And it was amazing to, it's amazing to kind of read his sermons. And normally we'll look at a chapter or a few verses, but today we're going to zoom out and we're going to look at the grand scheme of what God is doing. And we're not even going to get the biggest picture, but we're going to get a pretty big one. And uh, we're going to begin, as, as you can imagine or as you heard, from a guy named Abraham and something that God did with Abraham. And so normally we, we would have notes, but you can take notes. I'll try to give you what the outline points are. There's three main points. Uh, the first one is God's covenant initiated. Um, and, and you see what happened was God saw this man named Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I want to do something with you. I want to bless you. I want to make you into a great nation. And so he said, Abraham, leave your father's family, leave your land that you're familiar with, and I'm going to send you somewhere else. And a couple chapters later in the book of Genesis, we get this opportunity. You see, at this point, roughly by the time that Abraham was called, he was already an old man. In his 70s, maybe. Sorry, those of you guys who are in your 70s. You're, you're not old. You're just experienced. No, no. <laughs> um, but he was, he, was, he was just older. And then Abraham, uh, so he goes, he obeys God, goes to that land, and God calls him out again. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And did you notice what one of the passages said? He took Abraham outside, and he said, look up at the stars. Look and see how many your descendants are going to be. And Abraham's thinking, God, I'm old. Now I'm really old. I'm like 90. And my wife is like 80. And we haven't been able to have any. How are you going to give me this blessing? How are you going to do this? And then in Genesis chapter 15, God does something very, very interesting. And, and let me encourage you to write that down. Go back and read it a bit later today. I, I'll just kind of summarize it for you. But God tells Abraham, he does something very interesting. He says, instead of laying out his grand plan, he says, Abraham, I want you to go get a few animals, and we're going to get into a covenant together. And so he, Abraham gets these animals, and in their culture, what they would do, this is going to get a little gross, sorry, but they would cut the animals in half and push them aside, making kind of a pathway, not unlike this. And so they, he had three, four, five different kinds of animals. The smaller ones he didn't cut in half because there was not much to cut there. And normally in a covenant, two people would walk down the midst of this sacrifice. Of course, you can imagine what was in between these two halves of the sacrifices. Well, instead what happens 
is God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And then scripture tells us that we see a couple of pictures. We see an, an image of a torch and an image of a smoking fire pot that walk between or that pass between these two parts of the sacrifice. And we look at it with our eyes and thinking, so? That's just gross. What, what's going on here? And, and essentially, the reason, part of the reason they would do that, part of the reason this, this divided sacrifice thing would happen and people walk through it, is that they would essentially commit to one another. Two parties would commit to one another saying, may I be like this sacrifice if I fail to live up to the covenant that I am making with you today? We see this in marriage. In fact, when Danielle and I got married, my youth pastor talked about that. He said, we kind of walk down a center aisle in most places, signifying that sacrifice. This couple, thankfully, there's not as much blood in weddings. But, but there is that idea that I'm sacrificing something else for you. But here, if you notice, when God caused Abraham to fall asleep, and allowed him to see the vision of what was happening, Abraham never walked through that sacrifice. Abraham never entered into that covenant. So it begs the question, why would God, why, would, why didn't Abraham get up? And why didn't he do that? Why didn't he commit to it? And there's a lot of commentators that suggest that God did the covenant on his own. God entered into that covenant with Abraham. God restricted himself willingly to work with Abraham the way he was promising because he knew Abraham and his descendants would fail. He knew that Abraham could never fulfill all the things that God would expect of him. So God put himself up for that covenant. And God promised several things in that covenant and in his other conversations with with, uh, with Abraham. First of all, he promised an heir. He said, your own son, you in your old age at nearly 100 years old are going to have a kid and that son will be your heir. Isaac came about a decade after God made that covenant with Abraham. And then he said, I'm going to give you this land, this land that you're on. Your descendants are going to go away and they're going to come back here and it's going to take them 400 years to come back here, but this land will be theirs. And God fulfilled his promise to Abraham in that. And then he said, you're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. Basically telling Abraham, you're going to have so many descendants, you won't be able to count them. And by the time the people of Israel, by the time Abraham's descendants came back into that land, there were a couple million, but that's a countable number. I asked Jasmine this morning what the highest number was that she could count. She said 110, so that's how many eggs she got. <laughs> but when God took Abraham outside, you can't even number all the stars that are out there. It's an innumerable, it's a number so big you'll lose track. And then Abraham, or God told Abraham one other thing, and he said, you will be a blessing to all nations. All nations will be blessed through you. So God in, in Genesis chapter 15 initiates a covenant with Abraham and says, I'm going to do all these things. You're going to have an heir. You're going to have land. You're going to have descendants and all the nations are going to be blessed through you. Let's fast forward to the very end of the Bible where we get a chance to see the second point, God's covenant 
realize the, the reality of what happened. And in the passage that, one of the passages that Jordan read, um, we, we see a few different things. First of all, in, in, in Galatians, we get to see how believers in Jesus Christ are considered to be descendants of Abraham. It's, it's as though, even though for most of us, we are not biological descendants of Abraham. Most of us are what the Bible would call Gentiles. And, and even though we are not biologically there because of Jesus Christ, it's as though we've been grafted into Abraham's family tree. So now it's not just all the Jewish descendants, but now it's all of, all of everybody who believes in Jesus Christ can be a part of that. We also read from the book of Revelation when John saw a vision of the future. And in that vision, remember what he saw. In Revelation 7, 9 to 10, he said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude of 110 people. Is that right? No, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying aloud, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice that these were not just people from one part of the world. These were people from every nation, every geopolitical part of this planet were people that were assembled around that throne. And then it went on to say every tribe, by implication, this is a subset of a people group. You might have this vast group of people, but there are, just like here in the United States, you've got Americans, and then you've got the Northerners and the Southerners and the Westerners and the Appalachians and, and all the different parts, right? You have nations, tribe, you have every people. And we might think of this as clans or family groups or subsets of tribes. There's a, a missionary group called Finishing the Task, and, then, and they believe that there are currently 144 people groups, individual people groups around the world who have no witness of the gospel. Other sites suggest that that number is well over 7,000. It all depends on how we're going to define a people group. But what God says in his word is that there will be people from every people group around his throne. And then he adds one more clarification. Nation, tribe, people, language. Recently, some missionary agencies have been stating that language group might be the best way for us to think about groups of people, especially in unreached populations. And according to one, one site called the Lingua Language Center, it says there are 7,106 languages in the world. Currently, Scripture is available in 3,495 of those languages. We might think, man, we've got a task that's only half done. How are we going to get to all these different people groups? I was really encouraged. I, got a chance, I forgot this in my office, but I, I got a chance when, uh, back a long time ago to go to Papua New Guinea. And while I was researching some of this stuff this week, I found out that the nation of Papua New Guinea, it's a small island nation just north of Australia. They have the most diverse um, range of individual languages for any country. There are more individual tribal languages in that little nation than anywhere else in the world. But you know what? There was something that I was encouraged when I went to New Guinea a long, long time ago. What I found out is that the national language is English, but nobody speaks it. 
The second thing I found out is they speak this other language called pidgin, pidgin English. And it's a mix of English and Dutch and kind of a couple of tribal languages put in there. And I picked up a pidgin Bible. So sometime afterward, if you want to go, we can go in my office and we, you can try to read pidgin English. But what's interesting is there are a bunch of tribes who will go and be able to speak that trade language because they all need to be able to interact with each other, but they can't do it in that other. So all that to say, we may not have to have the, the word of God in every language. That is ideal. But we do need to be able to allow the word of God to be shared with people from every language. And it might be using common languages. And so if, if this picture that John saw is going to be a reality, then there will be spiritual descendants of Abraham in every single nation, from every single language. So on one end of Scripture, we see God's covenant initiated and the promise that all nations will be blessed through him. And then on the other end of Scripture, we see that covenant fulfilled with a countless multitude of people from every people and language group who are identified as God's people. And so how do we get from God's promise to Abraham to that picture that John sees in the very end of in the book of Revelation? How do we get there? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because ultimately we see God's covenant accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. On Friday night, we talked a little bit about covenants, and we talked, uh, you know, if you think about the night before Jesus was crucified, he, he said that the cup, that juice that we drink, that cup represented the new covenant in his blood. And instead of passing between parts of a sacrifice, Jesus was the sacrifice. He broke bread, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then in less than 24 hours, he was hanging on a cross of wood like this. His body beaten and bruised, tortured, broken. So if you have your Bibles open to the book of Mark, let me just kind of catch us up to where we are, and then hopefully we'll, we'll tie this all together. In the book of Mark, chapter 15, we see Jesus on the cross, and he's been there for several hours. He's got that crown of thorns on his head. He's, he's bloody and bruised. He's exhausted. He's, he's dying of asphyxiation because he's been trying to breathe and he just can't and as we read this passage i want you to notice who is there who does mark point out kind of pay attention to some of the people so if you have your copy of god's word and want to open to Matt, uh, to mark chapter 15 we're going to start in verse 37 if you have a pew you can grab the pew bible the book of mark is is uh, in the second half of the bible the big numbers are chapters small numbers are verses and if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one, or we've got some in the foyer as well. But let me read, starting in Mark 15, verse 37. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that this uh, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And there were also women looking on from a distance, from among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And they were, uh, there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. 
And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether uh, he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he, meaning Jesus, was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph uh, bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And I love what, well, think about it like this. Have you ever noticed that in some TV shows or in some movies, you kind of, the camera will zoom in on something and give you a glimpse of something that's going to happen way in the future? It's going to give you a glimpse of something that's a little bit out of place, but it's, it's, you don't quite know. You just, oh, okay, whatever that is. And I think Mark kind of does that here because did you notice who some of the main characters, who, who some of the key people were in this little passage? First of all, we have a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. He's someone who didn't come from a Jewish background. He was like most of us. And he, did you notice what he said after Jesus died? His words were, truly, that man is the Son of God. He recognized there was something amazing about Jesus as being an unbelieving pagan man. He likely worshipped the pantheon of gods, and yet this Gentile acknowledged that Jesus was the Son of God. So you have one person, a Gentile, now acknowledging who Jesus is. The second, there's a group of people that we get, get a chance to see, and that is the women. For, for most of us, we think, oh, big deal. There's, there's ladies there. Yeah, there's ladies. There should be guys, all that kind of stuff. But notice who wasn't mentioned. None of the disciples are mentioned in this part, which means they all scattered. In John's gospel, John happened to stick around for a bit, but all we see is women. And in their culture, Women did not have a right to stand in front of court. They couldn't testify. For whatever reason, they just didn't think that that was right. And ladies, I'm sorry. I'm glad our society has changed enough. But here's the very interesting thing. These women stuck around. These women stayed there in order to watch what would happen. These women were bold enough to see what was happening to Jesus Christ. And if we flip forward one chapter to Mark chapter 16, verse, verses 1 to 7, we see this, that Saturday evening when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could appoint Jesus' body. And very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb, and on their way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. And they entered the tomb, and they saw a young man clothed in, white, in a white robe sitting on the right side. And the women shocked. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Look, this is where his, they laid his body. Now, remember, a couple of them already saw where they laid his body. Look, this is where they laid him. 
Now go and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there just as he told you before he died. So you have this centurion guy, this pagan. You have these women who would not be able to testify, and yet they're the ones who are witness, who get to go bear witness about Jesus being alive. And then there's one other person that I want us to think about looking back in in chapter 15, and that other person is this guy named Joseph. No, it's not Jesus' stepdad, Joseph. It's a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. This man was part of the Jewish ruling council. He was a secret follower of Jesus. He was a little bit afraid, but notice after Jesus died... He got a little bold, finally, and he asked for the body of Jesus so that he could bury him properly. So why do I point these out? Why do I raise issue to these three different groups of people or these three different individuals? You see, at the cross of Jesus, we see the powerful, we see the religious, we see the marginalized, we see a powerful soldier acknowledge Jesus' deity We see several women faithfully remain to take care of his body and then remain to testify that he was alive. We see this Jewish believer, this Jewish leader, risking his position and reputation in order to put Jesus' body in a tomb. And in many ways, I think we get to see a microchasm at the cross of what John saw in the vision of Revelation. So what? So big deal. Why, why do we do that? We'll see the covenant that God initiated with Abraham. God was promising something. And the picture that John saw in Revelation of that innumerable people from all backgrounds is the fulfillment of that covenant. And Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the way that God made that happen. He made it so that people from every nation, from people from every people group could come before, could bow ourselves before Jesus Christ and recognize, yes, we are all equal before God. We are all stained with sin, and we all need his sacrifice. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is God accomplishing that covenant. You see, Jesus was truly human, and he was truly God. He became both the broken body, which was sacrificed, and the one who fulfilled God's covenant. God knew that Abraham's descendants would fail. We just have to read the rest of the Old Testament. We'll see failure over and over and over again. And so, like God did with Abraham, Jesus was the only one who made himself that that standard for the covenant. He knew that he, being God, had to be the one to accomplish whatever was needed to fulfill the promise to Abraham. And so with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he alone accomplished what we would fail to do. It's not our performance, because we're going to mess up. It's not our obedience, because we will disobey. It's not our religious activity, because we know we're going to be inconsistent. It's not our social standing. It's not our political preference. It's not your parents that get you into heaven. It's not your career. It is Jesus Christ and him Alone, Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. And the means by which we get to be a part of that innumerable throng of people 
is to believe. John 3, 16 and 17. People see that at football stadiums. We understand those verses, but I want you to hear it. It says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, from whatever background, from whatever language, from whatever whatever people and tribe and tongue, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, for yours and mine, because of our sin, God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then finally, Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So I got to ask you, do you believe? Do you believe? Will you believe? Will you be a part of that great throng of people, that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who is gathered around the throne, who gets to be a blessing to people in every nation? Will you believe? And will you live that out in the community that God has called you to be a part of? The message of salvation in Jesus Christ is a message for people from every nation from every neighborhood in Poolsville and Bellsville and Dickerson and Rockville and wherever else we're from, Frederick, it's for you. So we must begin with belief, responding to him, and then we must live that out so that we can be that blessing that God promised to Abraham. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much.